Podcastle, episode 281, for October 8th, 2013. The Wanderer King, by Elisa Owlring. Rated R, contains some disturbing imagery as well as violence. Welcome to the Apocalypse. Hello and welcome to Podcastle also. I'm Dave Thompson. Before we get started, I want to wish a very happy belated birthday to our good friend Alistair Stewart, who you hear every week at Pseudopod and every other week at Escape Pod. Alistair's been one of the leading voices at Escape Artists for a long time now, and I've actually told him I think of him as the face of EA since Steve left. I got to hang out with Al and Marguerite Kinner last year twice. Once at Medieval Times, where we feasted on baby dragons and were treated to our night slaying all the competition. And another time, we treated Al to his first s'more around a campfire. Yeah, I got to sit around the campfire with Alistair freaking Stewart, and it was awesome. And I love that we get to do it once or twice a week, pretty much, thanks to all the hard work he's done at Escape Artists over the years. Riding along in our cars, listening as we work out. I don't know. It still has kind of a campfire feel to me. So, happy birthday, Al. Thanks for all the hard work. And I, for one, look forward to you taking over the world. And it seems particularly appropriate with that in mind that we have a very dark, twisted story for you this week. Today, we're going to go apocalyptic on you with a story that reminds me, oddly, a little bit of Lord of the Flies, with fantastic elements, and an all-female cast. And yes, I realize probably all of those things are very much at odds with each other, making this a very weird one, which is part of the reason we love it. Podcastle's very proud to present The Wanderer King by Elisa Owlering, originally published in the excellent Clockwork Phoenix 4 anthology edited by Mike Allen. Alicia's short fiction has appeared in Writers of the Future, Volume 29, Flash Fiction Online, and the anthology Secret Histories and Missing Links from Aqueduct Press. She contributes to the Writer's Room column at Waylines Magazine. She's fond of moss, mushrooms, Kate Bush songs, and a well-made mojito. You can visit her online at owlering.com. It's been way too long since we asked Amy Robinson to read for us, and we're happy to have her back. She gave amazing reads for us with Tim Pratt's Heart and Boot and Caitlin R. Kiernan's The Belated Burial, as well as recently reading the Hugo-nominated Immersion over at Escape Pod by Elite de Bodard. You can find Amy online at amyrobinson.vo.com to find other stories she's read, as well as to hire her for your own voice acting needs. So sharpen your antlers, try on that crown, know we expect great things from you. Terrible, but great. And enjoy the story. The Wanderer King by Alyssa Allering It is day 90 and most all are dead. Wanderers are dead, fixers are dead, but me and Pansy are alive today and we both want to be alive tomorrow. We want to find a way out of this deep dark bottom hole the world has fallen into. We are in the Potato Man's house. 
He is dead on the floor, and we look for something to eat. The potato bins stack top and top along the cold stone wall. It smells cool in my nose, like dirt and mud, starch and flour. The potato man is not long dead and smells sour, coppery, wet. Gone, Pansy says, her arm in the bins up to the elbow, fingers crawling on the bare boards. All? I ask. There is one window, small, but we're in the forever days. And the light from the outside shows the dark space of the potato man's life. The hard chair with the folded blanket. Pegs on the wall hang mattock fork. I take down the mattock. Swing and heft. Old dirt cracks off the head and crumbles on the floor. Pansy gets down on her knees and leans under the bed. She drags out the trunk, goes through the clothes and blankets. We are not first, she says, finding nothing worth having. I tuck up my skirt and go up the ladder to the cramped loft under the musty eaves where I find a dead bird, its feet in the air, its beak so still I can see the holes of its nostrils. Nothing here, I say, backing down. As we leave, Pansy spots the crown, hanging from a nail above the door. It looks to me like a pair of antlers, stuck on some skin, tied with a string. The king, Pansy says. She comes from wanderers, so she knows things differently. She says the king can lead us back to the top world, where things are right side up. She says we have to try it on, in case one of us is secretly the king. I think we would already know, but she says you can't tell until the crown is on your head. You go first, Chul, she says. She rubs her palms across her eyes in that way that I've got used to. You, I say, because she wants me to say it. We've been together now since day 45, when we hid from the fixer men in the same storage shed among the grease drums and the fertilizer. I know how her wheels wind. I lean the mattock against the stone wall and take the crown. The antlers are sturdy, short, stubby prongs the color of a polished walnut, stitched with oiled thread onto a dark leather cap, braided cord trails down over the earpieces, with a catch to fasten under the chin. Pansy is taller than me. I reach up high to hold the antlered cap over her head. She stands so still that I know she is listening, all hairs on end. She's waiting for whatever form the magic takes. She is waiting to be king. I push the cap down over her springy hair, holding out the earpieces. I balance the weight of the antlers between my open palms, then let go. I see the exact moment when she realizes nothing is going to happen. And maybe I see her think about pretending, but Pansy is honest. She puts her hands up beside her ears and pulls off the crown. Your turn, she says. I know that I'm not the king because I know what I have done, but that's not something I'm going to tell. So I stand still. I feel her breath on my neck and then the lopsided weight of the crown settling along my head, the cap bending down my ear on one side. I give it a few beats so she thinks I take it serious. I lift my shoulders, let them back down. Now what? I give the crown back to Pansy. What would a real king's crown be doing here? I'm looking at the rope bed and the tin teapot and the stack of turf beside the cold stove. Kings don't live like this. This king's not like that, she says. Besides, maybe he, meaning the dead potato man, is come from the king's family line. Maybe he's been keeping it. Maybe the king put it here for us to find. 
She holds the crown close to her face, letting the horns touch her cheek. Wanderers trundle the woods, sniffing after invisible things. They know about finding. She looks into far distance, then back at me. We have to try him, she says. But he's dead. Everyone's dead, Chul. We have to find the king. She takes the crown from me and goes over to the dead man. His wool vest is buttoned up straight to the chin. The slice starts there, halfway around his ear and into his hair. He looks up at the mud roof with his one eye left. Pansy picks his head up off the floor and rests it on her lap. She sets the cap on his head and holds it there, watching his ruined face. Nothing happens, and Pansy closes her eyes. I hear the breath go out of her nose. She eases the man's head down to the floor, where it rests with a little thunk. She stands and wipes her hands on the back of her skirt. Careful, she carries the crown. We go out to look for the king. We steer clear of the mines. That's Fixer territory. The Wanderers are dangerous, too, ever since they came fighting back around day 30. But there's always been less of them. Less in all, and less because they scatter through the woods on their business instead of fixing to the towns and mines. We step along to the city, fitting the crown on all we come across. We sleep in the darkest part of the day when the sky dips to dark blue. At first, in the country, there aren't many heads to try. But we come up on the city and we slow. We even try it on fixers because Pansy says the king is the king and it doesn't matter whose body he's in. The king is for all, Pansy says. Anyone can carry the king. We start down a back street at the edge of town. All trampled gardens and the backs of shops, bordered on the other side by the crumbled rocks of the old wanderer's wall, tumbled down and the gaps slap-hatched with crankling sheets of corrugated tin. In the first ten days, the fixers rounded up the wanderers as they came into the bureaus with their gleanings to sell and killed them all at once. These bodies are blown up like big water bags, gurgling and gassing and covered in flies, and we pass them by. We can't stand to get close enough to test them. Up ahead, behind a garage, three women lie together in the road. Scarves flutter loose around their heads as if they had tried to hide their faces when they left home. Fixers or wanderers or some other, I don't know. Two are huddled together, dying with their arms wrapped around as the knives bit into their backs. Glass glitters at the base of the wall, a broken bottle of soured milk. The third is farther away, stretched out flat. Slashes are on her legs and chest and the flesh of her cheeks split wide. A black-spotted pig has squeezed through a gap in the wall and forages at her sides, snuffling and grunting. Get away! Pansy shouts. She runs at the pig, waving her free hand. The pig turns and charges her. Pansy leaps back. The crown tumbles out of her arms as she scrambles up the stone wall out of the reach of the pig. I pick up the crown by the antlers, ready to leap up the wall next to Pansy. We can run down the length and find other bodies to test. No, Pansy says. Try them first. Keeping my eye on the pig, which has settled down to slurp clots of milk from the broken jar, I try the crown on the two women lying together. When I get to the separate one, I see where the pig has chewed two fingers from her hand. I crouch down beside her and pull back her scarf, peeling it loose from her scalp. Her hair is razored close to the skull, a soft fuzz. She has sharp black brows that wing together above her puffed eyes in a way that accuses. I rock back on my heels. This is stupid, I say. No one Someone's going to save us. Just do it, she says. She wipes her hand across her eyes, digging at the invisible blood. <sighs> 
there is no king, I say, mostly to myself. But I lower the antlers onto the woman's head, and as it skims her brow, some force reaches out for the cap, sucking it down, gripping it against her skull. I try to snatch it back, but it sticks fast. I drop the antlers like they're on fire and jump to my feet. Red blood pumps out of the woman's pig-eaten fingers. The woman's eyes blink open, dark gold like the polished antlers on the crown. A hot wind blasts us in the face, carrying voices, men talking and shouting on the other side of the garage. Pansy stares at the dead woman wearing the crown of antlers and bleeding from the stumps of her fingers. We have to get gone from here, I say. The woman sits up, gets to her feet. The antlers reach above her head, poking the sky. The cords dangle, unfastened along her jaw. She wears a man's jacket, the rolled-up sleeves sliding down her scabbed arms. I can't tell if she sees us or not. The men's voices come closer. They're in the street on the other side of the shops. The air carries the smell of their sweat and the dust they stir up from the road. I hear the stamp of their feet and the swish, swish swing of their knives. I look down the alley, then back at the woman. I am sure she was dead. Not just slightly dead, but very dead. Pansy, I say, what is she doing standing? The woman takes a first step, but her dead legs won't hold her, and she stumbles. She reaches out a hand for the garage wall and gets herself right, leaving red finger smears on the yellow painted blocks. Pansy leaps down from the wanderer's wall, vaulting past the pig, which is rolling the bottle down the pavement with its nose, trying to get the last licks of sour milk trapped inside. Please, your majesty, Pansy says to the woman, show us the way out. Take us to the door. At her words, the woman jumps like a rabbit and lurches into motion, walking fast. Her sandals crunch in the broken glass. She cuts into the alley that leads to the front side of the shops. Pansy runs after her, and I grab her arm as she passes. The fixers are out there. We have to hide. Pansy shakes free. We have to follow her. The king knows the way out. I want to scream at her stupidity, but with the men so near, I don't dare. I scuttle after her down the alley, my back against the block wall. I stick close to the building, crouch in the shadow. The woman is on the other side of the open street, standing in front of the cracked glass of a restaurant window. She stares at her broken reflection. Pansy crosses towards her, and just then the line of fixer men appear, marching together with tools in their hands, wearing their blood-stained overalls like uniforms. There are only six, but they bulge in the deserted street, filling it side to side. The man in the lead, red-haired and broad, raises his fist, the blood-smeared blade held high. Beside him, two boys with first-haired lips lean into a sprint and streak towards Pansy. My hand closes around the handle of the knife in my belt. Pansy and I have been together 45 days, and we look out for each other. She is the only thing I have left in the world, but in my mind, I remember before. I see my own hand holding a knife, see the blade slice into flesh, part of the seam of life, and turn a living body into a nothing bag of skin. Everyone said the wanderers would kill us first. My head ran pictures of them slinking in from the forests with their dirty feet and animal noses, whispering their secret songs and carrying wet bags of gleanings, water dripping from the blades of their crook-armed diggers. On day three, I saw the crowd holding a girl down in my street. Her name was Belle. Grown men and Women were spitting on her and kicking her and making her cry. My heart skittered, and I ran and joined them. The furnace man's wife threw a stone. A boy next to me gave me a knife. Belle called me by name and begged me not to kill her. Snot ran from her dirty nose, and she jumbled up frightened.
Satan stories, trying to remind me how we used to play frog stones together in the street when we were small. My hand shakes. The fixers are coming, and I still can't draw the knife. I could step out into the road and tell the men I come from a fixer family. That's one thing Pansy already knows. But we are too late in the days for that to matter anymore. Pansy runs away down the street, arms pumping, her skirt flying around her legs, looking too late for somewhere to hide. A mustache boy lunges and brings her smash down in the dirt. I feel her hit in my own chest, bite to stop from crying out. The other five stomp forward, dust and stink and hungry blades. In my eye's corner, I see the horns move. The woman turns her head from her reflection to Pansy, and the antlers swivel. She kicks a bare foot through the restaurant window and heaves up a table as she leaps back into the street. With both hands overhead, she smashes it down, breaks off the leg. She grips the end, double-fisted. She holds the sharp tip high and walks into the crowd of men. She swings into their stomachs, jabs into their ribs, cracks the table leg against their skulls. The men fall, toppling into the dirt. Pansy runs to my side, unhurt. She holds on to me and I hold on to her. We watch the men destroyed, one after the other, until they lay scattered in the street. The king drops the sword and then she speaks. Where am I? She says. This time I know she's seeing us. I shove Pansy in the back. She made the king, so it's only right that she explain. You're the king, Pansy says. You're going to take us to the right side world. I was on my way somewhere. She says vaguely. She digs into her pockets, comes up with little belongings. A slip of paper, a coil of wire, a coin. Each one she holds up in confusion, lets drop from her hand. They fall on the dirt next to her sandaled toes. A man on the ground groans, and his body shifts. His arm flails, and I stomp it. Can you take us? Pansy asks. Yes. The king leads us out of the city. We follow her along the wanderer's wall into the country, where Blackthorn tumbles over its fallen stones. Blood drips from the king's missing fingers. It bothers me that she is still bleeding. I tear the sleeve off my shirt and take the king's hand, wrapping the cloth over the stumps, tying it off across the palm. As we travel, Pansy tells the king her story, the one she has already told me, about the man who lived next door. I used to call him uncle, Pansy says. He and his wife looked after me when my parents were out gleaning. When I heard about the killings in school, I ran to him and asked him to protect me. He dragged me down the stairwell and pulled my hair and slapped me. He held a chisel to my face and told me I was a dirty, wanderer sow. He made me take off my clothes. I go up behind and put my arm around her, but she shrugs it off. When he was done, he sat over me with a knife, and I could see him wondering what to do. But then more men came up behind him and beat him in the head. He fell on top of me. His blood, she says, wiping her eyes with both hands. The king walks ahead, her antlers against the blue sky. The fixers, Pansy says. I don't know why they started it. This time, I say, but we all have something to answer for. The blackthorn reaches out from the side of the road, tears my legs. Pansy looks at me sharp. You told me your parents never hurt any wanderers. They didn't, I say. The fighter men herded the wanderers into the hall. They handed out stones and knives to all of the fixers and told them to kill the wandering wood lice. My parents refused. The fighter men said if they wouldn't kill the wanderers, they were traitors and had to die. My parents still refused, so the other fixers killed them. The king turns her head, the golden antler eyes gleaming out at me from under the black wing brow. I'm telling the truth. I watched my father stand in front of my mother and take the first cut. 
thoughts. I saw him fall down, screaming at her feet. I saw her cover her face and bend over him as the fixers fell on her with their tools and fists. When the sky dips dark, we lay down in the forest to sleep. The black thorn is on the air, sweet with a scratch like hay, up my nose in the starlit air. The king is stretched out on the ground, her neck propped on a stone to give her antlers clearance from the ground. Pansy sleeps, curled in front of the king. I pull the knife from my belt and creep up beside them. The way the king looks at me with her antler eyes, she knows what I did, and I can't bear it. I raise the knife, hold it over the woman's head, ready to plunge it into her eye. Then, I see the bandage, the piece of my own skirt wrapped around the king's hand. She is already a bag of skin. She has crossed the line from living to dead. But here she is, wrapped around Pansy, keeping her safe, taking her out of our upside-down, sunken world. I put the knife away. We follow the king all the way back to the potato man's house. The house has been set on fire, but the flame is out, smoldering. From the distance, we see dogs circling, running through the potato fields. But when the king passes in through the yard, they are gone. The dark house smells of smoke, and the body of the potato man is gone. The dogs bark in the distance, and out the window I see their brushed tails disappear over the hill. Pansy hangs close by the king, who steps carefully over the place where the potato man laid. She picks up the loft ladder and leans it against the wall above the door. The empty nail hangs above the sill, where we lifted the crown. Pansy holds the ladder, and the king climbs. At the top, she unwraps her bandaged hand. The blood runs new from her missing fingers. She dips the first finger of her other hand into the blood, and starting at the nail, draws a square on the smoke-smudged wall above the door. She dips into the blood again, and again, until the line on the wall is clear and dark. I stand by the small window, wherein comes the blackthorn air, faint over the smoke and molded potato. The king dips her head forward and taps the wall with her antlers, one, two. The wall splits along the blood-drawn line, click, and a new door springs open. Inside the door she has drawn, instead of outside the potato man's house and a view of fields and forest, is a hollow space. Inside the space, steps lead up, a long staircase. Leaving the door open, the king backs down the ladder and stands in front of a wooden bench pushed against the wall. Pansy watches and wipes her hand across her eye, still trying to get the blood out. I wonder if she will still see it in the right side world. Pansy kneels down and kisses the king's undamaged hand. We're going up, Pansy says, looking at me. I think about Pansy, how we found each other among the fertilizer, how we have traveled and survived for 45 days, hiding and crying into each other's hair. I think about the knife in my hand and the moment when the seams of life split and Belle's self fell out. You go first, I say. The king is patient, watching. The drip of blood from her fingers is drying up. Pansy puts her foot on the ladder and begins to climb. When she reaches the top, she lets go of the ladder and reaches one hand through the new door the king has drawn. She holds it there, watching, waiting, to see if she really can go. Then she brings her hand back, closes her eyes, waits. Finally, she crawls up and over the ladder and through the door. I see her legs, her calves and ankles below skirt, and I watch each bit disappear up the stairs.
The king-drawn door bangs closed behind her, its bloody edge lines swallowed back into the plaster wall. I've always known I wasn't going. I'm fixed here, stitched in place by what I have done. But that doesn't make no way out easier to bear. The king drops down on the bench and slumps back, the tips of the antlers clacking against the stone wall. My knees go, and I fall on the sooty stone floor in front of the king. I grab her hand, hold it to my chest, hanging on. Potato root is in my nose. Oh, king, I say, don't leave me alone. I want the king to say something, that she understands, that she forgives me, that that I had reasons. She looks sympathetic, but she is dying. A last drop of blood falls from the stub of her middle finger, and then the king is just a bald-headed woman several days dead. My throat closes up. My lids bang down on my eyes, shutting my mind, trying to stop me. The king is gone. Pansy is gone. The world where I have lived the first 14 years of my life is over. If there is any world left for me to go, it is the one inside of me. I let go of the woman's cold hand. I stand and face the empty room. It feels like the knife is back in my fist. Only this time, I am slicing into myself. I wanted to hurt Belle. I say, these words are the point of the knife digging against resisting skin. It was a relief, I say, it felt good. I work the truth harder, split the tough seams I have sewn. Something gushes out, warm and sour. Once I hit her, I couldn't stop. It was the only way to be safe, the only way for the world to make sense again. I made Belle a bug, a germ. I struck and slashed with that knife, and my fear fell away. I hold out my hand, staring at it. Then she was dead, and her blood was wet on my skin. And I was even more afraid than I had been before. Some last bit slumps out of me onto the floor of the potato man's house, and I'm left standing in an empty bag of skin. New things fill up my eyes. I can't see where Pansy has gone, but I can see all of the potato man's life. I see the lines of him before they cut his throat. I see the bald-headed woman under the antlers, how she was just a woman on her way to the shop with a man who loved her, and how she was cut down. I see the puddle of my frightened self on the dirty stone floor, wet and lumpen. The lines stretch and go in every direction. Down my front, the potato air blows through the tattered edges of the self I have left. I am empty, open. I go to the woman. Her face is blank and bloodless. I unfasten the antlered cap and take up the crown. And welcome back. I love stories of the apocalypse that aren't just, you know, apocalyptic, but also have this strong layer of weird, fantastical stuff happening in them. I blame Stephen King, I think. So thanks, Elisa. Before we get to feedback, we have a special announcement here. I mentioned a while back that Anne Leckie had sold her debut novel, Ancillary Justice, to Orbit Books. Guys, it's out in stores now, and it's begging you to read it. It's definitely a science fiction book, so we're not going to feature a full-blown spotlight, but we did ask Anne to tell you a little bit about this book. Take it away, Anne. It took me a long time to get up enough courage to write Ancillary Justice. I knew a character like Breck would be difficult to write, or more specifically, a character like Justice of Toron One-esque, because Breck is really only a fragment of One-esque and is alone and single-bodied. So I knew One-esque would be difficult to write. 
But the more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that it was a story that needed to be in first person, and that was scary. Because one esque has 20 bodies, and all of them see and hear and speak and do things. It can be in 20 places at once, and doing different things in all of those 20 places. And really, one esque is just a fragment of Justice of Torin, a starship that has even more bodies slaved to it than just one esque's 20. How do you tell a story from that point of view? How do you convey what that must be like to be seeing and doing so many things at once? So it was a long time before I felt like I could even just hold my nose and jump in and figure I'd find some way to stay afloat. Of course, one of the things that helps is that ancillary justice is really not a work of hard science fiction. I knew from the start I'd be going full-on cherry-flavored space opera. I know space opera was originally meant to be an insult, meant to be parallel to soap opera and horse opera. But personally, I love big, shiny adventures, and I think there's room in the world for all kinds of science fiction, from the most mundane to the grandest, most ridiculous popcorn. And opera often is that. Grand, melodramatic, brightly colored, and gorgeous. And ancillaries, human bodies slaved to artificially intelligent warships, well, that just cries out for space opera, doesn't it? But I did do some research along the way. I find that often, understanding how something happens in the real world really helps me get a handle on how to present it fictionally, even if accuracy isn't really my main goal. In this case, I started looking into questions of identity, of how and where we draw boundaries around ourselves. I already knew about phantom limbs. I knew that there was some fuzziness in what your brain thinks your body is and what's actually there. I figured there was more to learn about that, and the more I read, the more disturbing the whole question became. Who is any of us, really? How do we know we're each of us only one person? How do we know where we leave off and anyone else begins? That knowledge is fragile. It can change or vanish with the right changes to your brain. And in the end, do we really know why we do the things we do? Breck's not 100% sure why she does the things she does either. So even though in a lot of ways she's very, very different from you or me, in that way, she's very much the same. Thanks, Anne. Guys, I'm biased because I think Anne Leckie's freaking awesome, and she's been working here at Podcastle for a long time. But I promise you, I would not be pushing this book if I didn't think it was amazing. I've read this book, and if you're a fan of space opera or science fiction, I really cannot recommend it enough. Ancillary Justice is a book that will nuke you from orbit and then send Ancillary's planet side with blasters to kick your ass all over again. It's smart, it's fun, and it'll make you think. People all over the internet are going big for this, and I'd love it to reach as huge of an audience as possible. And I'd love to see it get nominated for all kinds of awards. It's that good. It's in the bookstores and ebookstores now, and will be coming to Audible soon. So please check it out. Thanks. Feedback this week is for Jeremiah Tolbert's El Alma Perdida de Margarita Espinosa, read by Brian Lieberman. This was the last story in our Science Fantasy Month, and it featured priests doubling as vessels for souls passed on. Reaction to it was kind of limited, actually. I suspect that had as much to do with our Flash Fiction contest going on as anything else. Flint Knapper said, Fun story, cool setting, and the Alma, or souls, as commodities of value is interesting. It does not surprise me that Tolbert is writing more in this setting. This piece feels a lot like a bit in a much larger story of intrigue. 
It will be interesting to see what happens as he goes in search of his birth soul. An evergreen monster said, I found this to be a pretty engaging piece with some excellent, believable characters. I love that in the end there was no real bad guy, just people in tough situations doing what they feel they need to do in order to survive in a harsh world. I would have liked a bit more explanation into what an Alma actually is and some more interactions with animal souls, but to be honest, I'd rather read that explanation and more into this world in a book than have it given to me short story style. Nudge, nudge, Mr. Tolbert. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Get in on the conversation at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's tale. Also, if you sign up on our forum, you'll be just in time for the semifinals of our Podcastle Flash Fiction Contest. I've been following this contest very closely and have read all the stories that have been entered, and I have to say the competition is staggeringly good. I'm looking forward to seeing what you all decide will appear here at Podcastle. That was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Associate Editors Ann Leckie and LaShawn Wanick, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors Anna Schwind and myself, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with Patter O'Gillian's The Sunshine Baron. Until then... This is Dave Thompson for Podcastle saying, you don't know how it feels to be king. We'll see you next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote, Crowns do queer things to the heads beneath them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.